We're presently following a series, a series on those prophets in the scriptures who foretold the coming of the Saviour into the world. The prophets foretold his first coming, which we call his incarnation. The Lord Jesus Christ is the virgin-born Saviour. But the prophets also tell of his second coming, which we call his coronation. This means that when he comes, the Lord will fully show forth his divine glory. It will be the day, the day of Christ, the day of his public recognition in the world. An ungodly world will see him. The saints of God will see him as the King of kings and the Lord of glory. It is then those wonderful words in Revelation 11.15 will find their fulfilment. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Think about that. Think about those words. Turn them over in your mind. The kingdoms of this world the verse goes way, way beyond the contemplation of many. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's plain enough. Now, my subject is Nathan. Nathan is mentioned by name 29 times in the Old Testament. And he has a very fitting name for a prophet, a name which means given, given of God, or sent, sent of God. There's a fuller version of his name in the New Testament. I refer to Nathaniel, and there the name refers to a different person, of course. But Nathaniel, as a name, means sent of God. And that's how I look at Nathan. He's a God-sent man. Time after time, we see this in his ministry. And when we refer to Second Samuel 7, this is the first time that Nathan is mentioned in the Scriptures. While you're turning up the place, let me indicate that Second Samuel 7 falls into three parts. First of all, verses 1 to 3, where you find the introduction. Then verse 4 through to 17, God himself is speaking. God is speaking to Nathan. He's speaking to Nathan about David. And Nathan is to convey this message to David. Then lastly, verse 18 through to 29, David's response. David is at prayer. He offers the prayer of thanksgiving for the promise of God given unto him, for the blessing of God upon himself, upon his house, upon the nation too. So there are wonderful things here for us to think about. Let us then turn to this God-breathed word, this book of books, this word of life, I'm reading from Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 and onwards. And it came to pass, 
when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in an house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle in all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me an house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee, that he will make thee an house. When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Then went King David in, and sat before the Lord, and he said, 
Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And then there are those verses that follow. We come at the last to David's great prayer. He shows marvellous vision in it all. Verse 28. And now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true. And thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant. He's saying in effect, Lord, you have made this promise. Now just come by and do it. Fulfill this word even for me. His prayer is added to the promise of God. Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it. And with thy blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. With these words in our minds and in our hearts, let us briefly seek the face of the Lord for his help as we look at the scriptures together. O Lord, we thank thee that thou hast spoken. Thou hast given us thy word. And here, as plain as day, we can see the purpose of God working its way toward eventual fulfillment in the life of David and even then a way, way beyond his time to a time yet future to us. We thank thee for the certainty of this word. And O God, this day, by the power of thy Holy Spirit, establish that word again in our hearts that we may know that this is, this is the word of the living God. Abide with us in our time of meditation. Guide us, Lord, we pray, that we may clearly understand thy holy word and take that word to heart and grant that in our lives we may see the blessing of God follow on from that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn our thoughts then to Second Samuel chapter 7. The parallel passage to this chapter is First Chronicles chapter 17. And perhaps you can read it later. I think it would be very fitting if you can do that. But these two chapters, Second Samuel 7, First Chronicles 17, complement one another so that they show a close correspondence as you would expect. Chronologically, these two chapters follow on after the details are given concerning the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant from kirjath Jerem, where it was initially, all the way to Jerusalem, even to the city of David. Now that's the background to Second Samuel chapter 7, the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant from kirjath Jerem all the way to the city of David. Now, this is an event of huge, huge significance. Historically, it's of huge significance politically and spiritually, and much thought needs to be given to this point in time in the history of Israel. 
There are two psalms, however, that have special relevance to, to this event, and I think you should keep them in mind. First of all, Psalm 132. I focus on verse 6 only for the sake of time. But verse 6 reveals that it was David's expressed desire to find a place for the ark, a home for the ark. And he had sworn with a holy vow before God that he would not rest until he had found such a place. He cries, Lo, we heard of it at Ephratah. We found it in the fields of the wood. And the word wood there in the psalm ties in with the Hebrew form of uh, the name of Kerjath, Jerem. So we may understand that that's intended there. We found it in Kerjath, Jerem. And when he says we found it, that doesn't imply that, oh, he had to begin a very intensive search to find the ark. No, everybody knew. Everybody in the company of David knew that the Ark of the Covenant was in Kerjath, Jerem. But the finding of it refers rather to the thrill, the joy, the jubilation of seeing the Ark of the Covenant. And then there's that other psalm, Psalm 78, verse 60. It gives the divine perspective on what is taking place here. Verse 60 tells us how the Lord forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he had placed among men, and he delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the hand of the enemy. Verse 67 expands on this, that he refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim. But he chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. These are two psalms where we have the commentary, if you like, of the Holy Spirit of God on what occurs here in Second Samuel 7 and indeed what occurs before that, immediately before that, with the removal of the ark. So we find in 2 Samuel 7, as a follow-on from all of that, there are two men engaged in deep conversation. Those two men are identified for us. We have Nathan the prophet and David the king. David is voicing his thoughts. He has contemplated this matter before the Lord for some time, and now he will speak to Nathan, Nathan the prophet, about it. And he's saying, I dwell in a palace, but the Ark of the Covenant is lodged behind curtains. The sense is, it just doesn't seem right. And surely I ought to feel it incumbent on me now to do something more. Let me build a temple even so that the Ark of the Covenant can be lodged there in its place. He's putting this to Nathan the prophet for the prophet's consideration. Nathan responds enthusiastically because he has in mind, well, that sounds good. And, And David is the king. 
And besides, the Lord has been with him in a remarkable way. Therefore, he urges the king, go and do this. This is something that you have in your heart. The Lord has been with you in all things. Ah, but then a little time passes. And during those dark hours of the night, a change is made. God interrupts the sleep of Nathan with this very challenging message. Go and tell David. And the substance of it is, you cannot build the temple. You're prevented from doing this. And I want you to recognize this now. This barrier is erected. You cannot do this particular work. There are lessons for us to learn from all of this. How God sent the man. But he not only sent the man, Nathan, he told him the message. And our heart's desire is when in a a secondary way we may go on an errand to deliver the word of God. We're saying, Lord, send me, make me a sent man and deliver the word that you would have me to bring. Now there are lessons here. There's a lesson on the inspiration of Holy Scripture. Let us learn a a highly important lesson. This is where many scholars and commentators have erred and erred badly, in my opinion. For writers have indicated that, according to their mind, as to the giving of the scriptures, the prophets of old time had to research their subject or go and discuss matters with others in authority or take the example of the four gospels, the evangelists. Take Matthew. It may have been suggested, oh, Matthew would need to pay a visit to Capernaum to research material for his gospel. They find out there from people who know from their own experience, what the Lord said and what he did before their very eyes. And then you're entitled to write those details into your account, the Gospel of Matthew. But that in no way corresponds to Scripture. I, I want you to keep in mind Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. It explains what the position of the Christian should be in regard to the inspiration of Holy Scripture. There, the word is, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. That is to say, the prophet did not uh, fulfill his own desires. He did not write his prophecies out because it seemed to be good in his opinion that he should intimate those things to the nation. No, no. Prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, by the desire of man, by the effort of man. But, I continue with the reading of the verse, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the words of the prophet, whether they were spoken or written, are those words that are prompted by God himself. That is the plain teaching of Scripture. 
And no wonder verse 20 begins with the words, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. The prophet did not decide for himself that he would write out his particular prophecies. That's why we read in the following verse, Ah, holy men of God spake as they were moved. The utterance was the utterance of the Holy Spirit. The word itself was the word of the living God. It certainly was not the word of the prophet. So the inspiration is not in the prophet. The inspiration is in the message. This comes out very clearly in the narrative here. When Nathan, in good faith, said to David by way of encouragement, yes, go on, build the temple. This is marvelous. This is a wonderful thing. We brought the ark back. The ark is now resting behind curtains in the city of David. The time surely has come. We can see this very clearly in his thinking. But then God stepped in, showing Nathan this was not according to his mind. The word of the Lord is in the message, not in the messenger. And this is why Nathan was permitted to say the thing that he did at the first to David. To say, go on, do it. But then God has intended for all of us to find out in the chapter, that's not the mind of God. The mind of the prophet may be one thing. And the mind of God may be something else. It's the utterance that matters. It's the prompting of the Holy Spirit that matters. That's where the inspiration is. It's in the message. There are other examples in the New Testament, and I don't intend to extend this at any great length, but I do feel it's an important point today for the Lord's people to take on board. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, we have the passage commencing there, which uh, contains information about the institution of the communion feast. There the apostle begins to tell us how the Lord, that fateful night before they all left for Gethsemane's garden, how our Lord took bread, how he spoke about his atoning death, the bread that symbolized his body, the cup too that uh, was the symbol of his precious blood by which redemption would be accomplished. Paul describes all this in 1 Corinthians 11. But how can he speak with such authority? How does he know? Let's give him his former name, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus wasn't there in the upper room. He did not know firsthand exactly what the Lord did, how he took the bread, and how he also distributed the cup. He doesn't know one thing from personal experience of what took place there in the upper room. How then can he write about it so clearly? He tells us himself. It's First Corinthians 11, verse 23. We've read the word so many times, but for, oh, Quite a number of Christians. The truth has not sunk in. And the apostle is saying there, For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. 
in his description then of the communion feast, even though he's talking about all that our Lord said and all that he did in the upper room just then, with the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup, Paul says, oh, I know about it. I have received that of the Lord. He received it by divine revelation. He didn't make any mistake about it either. He had the mind of Christ. That's what we're talking about. When we speak of divine inspiration, the inspiration of Holy Scripture. Also Galatians 1 verse 11, Paul writes like this, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it. How important that is. He did not begin any program of research. He didn't have a tutorial from the best of men, from the most prominent apostle in Jerusalem. No, no. He says clearly, I certify you about this, that I received it not of man, even the best of men. And I was not taught it either, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul is saying with all this, I had the mind of God given to me. And those details that I have recorded about the teaching of Christ, I have received them from above with all respect. Although I admire the apostles who are stationed in Jerusalem, I did not receive any tutorial from them. I received it from above. That says everything. Perhaps I should round this paragraph off by quoting from those words of David himself in Second Samuel 23 verse 2 when he says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me. His word was in my tongue. There again we have a positive uh, declaration of what inspiration is all about. The utterance is the utterance of the Holy Spirit. The Word is the Word of the living God. It's the Word that has proceeded from God's own mouth. So that David is able to say, for all those portions that he wrote out under inspiration, he's saying, this is the explanation. The Spirit of God spake by me. The Word was his. The Holy Spirit is the real author. The Spirit spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Perhaps we can dwell a little more on the subject of the inspiration of Holy Scripture before we're through. But I I, I refer you to verse 17, because here we have the affirmation of God on what we've been saying. It says there in verse 17, According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Nathan now approaches the king uh, from a different perspective. He's speaking to him now as a man sent from God. And the words that he delivers to the king are those words expressly that have come from God. 
And the Holy Spirit of God is careful to have the reader note this in verse 17. So according to all these words and according to all this vision, therefore, in any word that Nathan now speaks to David during this present session that we're describing, any word that Nathan utters is according to all this vision and according to the word of Almighty God. That should keep us clear about this matter. And then there's another touching lesson in the chapter about prayer. And David has been praying concerning his intention of building the temple. In effect, God is saying no to him. Often the child of God at prayer uh, faces this difficulty, thinking to himself, now here I have a petition to bring to the Lord. I'm burdened in my heart to bring this petition. But then I fear the Lord may say no. And if he does, how then will I respond to him? There's a great lesson that emerges from Second Samuel 7, where in effect, God is saying no to David. But I make the point very quickly. That's because God has something better in mind. And on many occasions, if not in every uh, sense, on many occasions when God says no, it is because he has something infinitely better in view. Take Abraham's example. Abraham has the burden of heart concerning the birth of the son, even Isaac. And he has several candidates because as time passes, Abraham's faith is tested, tested very severely. And he offers his candidates. He has Lot, of course, who is virtually an adopted son there in Abraham's encampment. He's offering Lot or even Ishmael. The prayer is, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Lord, would you accept him? Would you take him as my son? Is Abraham looking for the prophecies to be fulfilled spiritually when he provides his list of candidates? Is he looking for a kind of spiritual fulfillment? Saying, Lord, you can take uh, Ishmael to be uh, the son that's promised and Lot also to be the promised son what about Eliezer of Damascus and in every case God in substance is saying no no the mind of God is clear in Isaac shall thy seed be called nobody can take the place of Isaac and Isaac is named and spoken of as if he's already in existence and this before the babe is born all the time in the mind of God, Isaac was there. It was as if he was present physically, although we know that moment had to wait until he was actually born. But God said no in all these instances, because when it came to the point where Isaac was born, there are no two ways about it. But Abraham and Sarah rejoiced in the birth of the child. His name means laughter and what holy laughter they had to rejoice in the Lord in the miracle birth of Isaac. 
It was clear now to Abraham and clear also to Sarah that God's no was for their own betterment. And the Lord, when he said no, had the purpose of doing something that was infinitely better for Abraham than what Abraham had thought of in the first instance. And so it is here with David. God has something far more wonderful in view. And we begin by looking at um, David's intentions. David had the intention of building the temple of God in Jerusalem. If the Lord would permit him to do this. David is subject to the will of God and happily so. He does not mean to act in a contrary way to the will of God. But the Lord accepts his intention. It is clear here that David had this in his heart to build the temple. And when God said no, it was cutting across David's own feelings. Intense as they were. This is the touching point about the chapter. When God said no, not only did he have something better in mind for David, which he did, but God took David's intention. Just as it was, as if David had already carried it out. And God would reward him for that. He would reward him in kind. And this takes our attention here in the chapter. You see, God recognises our intentions many times when we have never been able to carry out those intentions. One may say in his heart or her heart as, heart as the case may be, oh, if I could do such and such a thing, then I would respond. I would serve the Lord in this way. And if that is said with all earnestness, and if it's said as a token of goodwill and uh, a full intention of carrying out that project, then God accepts the will for the deed. And you can see the reward is given to David, a reward in kind, because God is speaking uh, to David about his house. He's saying, in effect, David, you've been prevented from building me a house. But I tell you what, since I have recognized your intention, I'm going to reward you accordingly. I have prevented you from building me a house. But to make up for that, I'm going to build you a house. And, and David goes over the point there in, in his prayer of response. And he's clear, Lord, you have said this. It's in verse 27. And then it's, the original point is made by God in verse 11. I will build thee in house. Lord, you have said that. And therefore thy servant hath found in his heart to pray this prayer. Because, Lord, you have undertaken to do this as if I had actually built a house for thee. And this that God promises to David is infinitely better for David than if it had been the case that David had built the temple. So God's way is always better. God's will is infinitely better 
for us as we consider this chapter. And you'll notice too that David, because he was prevented from building the temple, did not opt out of the service of God. I fear that some believers here, there and yonder, when they have um, hit upon a stumbling block and have been prevented from going on in the Lord's work, have then decided, oh, that's me finished. I'll not be back at the house of God. I, I have just finished with this now. But David says, I want to prepare. My heart is in this. In First Chronicles 29, we won't refer to it now, but he speaks of his preparations, intense preparations, providing silver and gold, providing precious stones, and then the huge stones as well. Ever so much is done by way of readiness in preparation for the building of the house. And David is showing by example that if he cannot actually build the house by God's permission, then he will do as much as he can to help forward the work of God. And it falls to us today to say, what can I do for the Lord? And if, like David, I can do some things, let me prepare with all my might. And that's First Chronicles chapter 29. Now let's look at this. David benefited by how God spoke to him through Nathan the prophet. He benefited in two ways. First of all, he benefited by obtaining a revelation from God that is most remarkable. And not only did he obtain a revelation from God, but also he was promised rich blessing by God. And these two points emerge in David's response to the Lord himself. And David speaks about God's revelation to him. His precious word. We even read there today, didn't we? Let thy word be true. He says there in the verse, Thy word be true, and thou hast promised this goodness. So upon the truth of God's word, David rests his prayer, his petition, and he's saying, On the truth of what thou hast said, let this promise be fulfilled. Now God revealed his word to David. Do you see that there in verse 27? This is an outstanding thing. There's ever so much we could say about this passage. After all, we've had a whole chapter to contemplate. But let me uh, put it in this succinct way. God gave David a revelation. That word revelation comes from the Hebrew term galah. It's, it's a verb that occurs many times in Scripture. If I remember correctly, it occurs uh, 188 times. But there are those instances when the word has a special use. I refer now to the process of revelation, God speaking to men. Let me show you what I mean. If you could turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, this is most interesting. The word gala appears here. Although obviously not in the text of our authorised version. After all, it is a Hebrew word. But I want you to look at First uh, Samuel chapter 9, and um, verse 15. The words are, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came. 
saying, tomorrow about this time. So the Lord communicates this piece of information to Samuel. Samuel's an old man now. Israel is clamoring for a king and God has consented to this being done. And he's saying to Samuel, as you leave the city tomorrow, about this time, to go up the hill to the place of the sacrifice, you will meet a man and I'll tell you about him. This is the substance of what God's saying to Samuel. Tomorrow about this time, please notice this. We're talking about a 24-hour time span. This prophetic word, as God delivered it to Samuel, is fulfilled literally. Tomorrow is tomorrow. 24 hours from now, you will meet this man. I'll tell you about him when the time comes. But that's what verse, uh, this verse in chapter 9 is uh, telling us in verse 15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear. There's something very fascinating about that. The Lord telling Samuel in his ear. The word gala is used here to signify a revelation that God gave and put into the ear of Samuel the prophet. So that that word had its fulfillment precisely the very next day. There are some interpreters, you see, when it comes to God's prophetic word, are always very insistent in pointing out, oh, when God in prophecy speaks about time, way out there into the future, we're talking in uh, terms of thousands of years, perhaps, given the prophecy. They're basing their words on uh, the line, uh, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. Therefore, arbitrarily, they have made that a rule for prophetic interpretation. That one day would be a thousand years. Was it so here in First Samuel 9? Not a bit of it. When God said tomorrow, I'll do this to Samuel, he fulfilled that word the very next day. It was indeed on the morrow that God said so. And you will see that as they went out of the city, verse 14, they went up into the city. When they were come into the city, behold, Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. And that's when the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before, uh, tomorrow about this time. And so the Lord indicates, verse 17, when Samuel saw, Saul, the Lord said unto him, Behold the man whom I speak to thee of. There he is, exactly as God had said. God's revelation in this case involved a given time with Samuel. God said to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, 24 hours from now. And that prophetic word came to pass, literally. Now when you come to Second Samuel 7, and you see David saying here, Lord, you have revealed all these good things to me. That's verse 27. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Thou hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee an house. 
He has this by revelation from God. Now, it's striking that the language would be somewhat similar in respect to David, as it was with Samuel, that God spoke to David's ear. Look at the margin. If you have a margin in the copy of the authorised version that you're using, and you will see there how he revealed it in David's ear. And that's how the Hebrew text runs, that God opened David's ear, that he might hear with perfect understanding what God had indicated to him. That is wonderful. It reminds me of the experience of the apostles on the resurrection day, when the Lord not only opened their eyes that they would recognize him, he not only opened the scriptures, to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and we're studying the prophets. All those things concerning him. But later on, in verse 44, let me find the place. In verse 44, he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So the Lord not only opened up the word, but he opened up their minds. He gave them the mental capacity to take to heart the very things he had taught them. We need the Lord to work in this way, to open our eyes in relation to scripture. And that's where Galah comes into play again. Psalm 119 verse 18, open thou mine eyes. Again, Galah is used here for the opening of the eyes, as if the Lord would remove the veil. He would take away the bandages that have been wrapped around the head of the man who's uh, in the process of recovering his sight. And now as every bandage comes away, he can see suddenly, with perfect vision, open thy mine eyes. That's how it is in the Psalm 119. With David, second Samuel 7, it's opening his ear, revealing it in his ear. And with the apostles, in Luke 24, verse 44 and 45, it is opening our understanding. In a secondary way, we can also cry to God about this and say, Lord, open our understanding. Give us, as we study this word, Give us that ability to take to heart and to understand every word that's there as best we can. Lord, reveal thy word to us. Let me say in closing that God's revelation matters to David. Somebody may say, well, what exactly did the Lord reveal uh, to David? Uh, and This is where we look at uh, the actual word given to Nathan the prophet. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord speaks first of all of how he had watched over David from his early days in the wilderness when David shepherded the sheep. He says, I was with you 
I was with you in all the places where you went. And David now, by revelation, sees God's hand in his life. But not only so, he sees God's purpose in the future. And there is special reference to Israel. Moreover, verse 10 reads, 2 Samuel 7 verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Now, when these words were spoken, first of all, to Nathan and then secondarily to David, Israel's borders were secure. There was no danger from any quarter. David is now the king. He reigns supremely. He reigns in power. There's no question of any fatal attack from the enemy. Indeed, verse 1 of our chapter, 2 Samuel 7 verse 1 says, As David sat in his house, the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. So there was never a time when the border of Israel was more secure than it was at that point in David's time, when he sat in his house in Jerusalem, installed now as the king over the nation. Oh, this is wonderful. God is saying, in regard to Israel, in time to come, when the nation is uprooted, many are scattered across the face of the earth, I will bring Israel back. I will give them their home in this land. I will appoint for them a place. And I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own. The world um, is against Israel for the most part. We have many clamoring with authority, uh, declaiming against Israel, who are using every means in their power to oppose the people of Israel. But the day is coming when God will establish them before all our enemies. It says here, when the Lord establishes them in a place of their own, they will move no more. There'll be no more disruption, no more displacement. They will not again suffer anything by way of oppression at the hands of the wicked. The children of wickedness shall not afflict them any more as before time. So there's a marvellous place in this revelation as it's given to David for us to to think about Israel in time to come. God has appointed a place for them. I'm talking about the land of promise. This land is described further on in our chapter in, in verse 23 as thy land. Oh, let us pick out those words. This land that God's going to appoint for Israel as an inheritance in the time to come when King David's greater son will take his place upon the throne reigning over the house of Jacob. Why? God will appoint a place for his people that they may move no more that the children of wickedness may afflict them no more and this land is his land. That's what verse 23 entitles us to say, thy land, God's own land, doesn't lie with the United Nations to decide Israel's future, doesn't lie with any department of the United Nations to legislate against Israel. For this land is God's land, and he has appointed a place for his people, 
And David says as he looks away down through the corridor of time, Lord, you've spoken about thy servant's house for a great while to come. And part of that revelation concerned the appointment of a real national home for the people of Israel. I will appoint my people a place. And they are redeemed. They belong to the Lord. They are now his people. And they are living in his land as this prophecy foresees it. And not only does David foretell uh, the establishment of the nation of Israel, but he also tells us of the person of God's dear son. He gives us what really amounts to a messianic prophecy. I pick up in verse 14. I will be his father, he shall be my son. God has promised to David that the Messiah shall come from his family line. The son of David. In later time, the Messiah will sit upon David's throne in Jerusalem. And this kingdom will be established by God. So the Lord speaking to David about a person, about Christ. It's marvellous when you think about it, the things that God put in David's ear that day. God's purpose concerning Israel, that in future years he would establish his people as a redeemed people. He would be their God, they would be his people. And not only does he promise that the Messiah will come out of David's loins, Messiah will appear in the house of David, he'll be the son of David, But you see those words in verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. The Holy Spirit has become an interpreter of those words. He has applied them directly to Christ. I'm making reference to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, where these words are quoted. The reference is to Christ. The Holy Spirit is the best interpreter. And the Holy Spirit has shown us that Christ is in view here. That's tremendous. I will be his father. He shall be my son. But he's also the son of David. He will not only sit upon the throne as God gives it to him and speaks of his kingdom as he does here, but in a way David's name is linked. And he's sitting, Christ is sitting upon the throne of David. And that brings me to the permanence of this prophetic word. You see the word forever there. It occurs eight times in Second Samuel 7, beginning verse 13, working through to the end. Three times God uses the word. I wish I had time to go through and specify these references. But it's also true in First Chronicles 17 that eight times once more the word forever is used. God says in verse 13, the kingdom will be established forever. He speaks of the throne in verse 13, verse 15 rather. The throne shall be established forever. Working right through until David with his fivefold repetition of the word forever. For David picks up on that. He sees the permanence of God's appointment. He's saying there, Lord, let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant that it may be before thee forever. For thou blessest, O Lord, 
and it shall be blessed forever. I'm overwhelmed with the, the permanence of it. And, and the angel of Gabriel, prior to the birth of Christ, speaking to Mary, left these words with her. I'm making reference to Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. He shall be great because of who he is. He's the son of the highest. He shall be great because of the throne he occupies. God shall give to him the throne of his father David. The throne of David's not in heaven. The throne of David will be in Jerusalem. All this is in the message of Nathan to David. And he shall be great because of the perpetuity of that kingdom. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. The angel Gabriel, in a sense, expounds the prophecy that was given so long ago by Nathan the prophet, even to David. There are wonderful words here for us to take as a basis for meditation today. And I pray that God will richly use and bless his word in your own soul and in your life. And may we learn some of the lessons there today that many a time when God says no to a believer, a believer who's so earnest in presenting his petitions to God, that child of God need not be disappointed because in many, many instances, God is just about to do something far, far better. And David had no regrets when, looking back on it all later, he could see what God undertook to do for him, speaking of his house for a great while to come, a way, way out into the future, when Christ the Saviour would appear, when the Lord Jesus himself would actually sit enthroned in Jerusalem, sitting there upon the house of, upon the throne of David. It's a marvellous thing. And David doubtless could have said, oh, it's far better. I'm glad the Lord said no to me because he gave me something far more wonderful besides. May the Lord rejoice our hearts. David is saying here for the promise, now Lord, you've said these things. Oh, do it for thy name's sake. That, that is here in our chapter. May the Lord bless his word to all our hearts for his name's sake.